Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Paul Adler, Assistant Professor of History at Colorado College. Paul is the author of No Globalization Without Representation, U.S. Activists and World Inequality, published this year by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome, Paul. Great to be here and great to see you. It's it's such a pleasure to have you. So what got you interested in this topic? What made you write the book that you did? Yeah, so <laughs> to sound probably overly grandiose, it started in high school, right, when turning on the television news and seeing the battle in Seattle uh, happening, which I know we'll, we'll talk about later, but was this you know, very large disruptive protest in Seattle at the end of 1999 against the World Trade Organization. And, you know, also, as I somewhat talk about in the books, the the 90s in many ways weren't the most vibrant era for the U.S. left. So turning it on, I was like, what is this? Like, what is going on? And, you know, the battle in Seattle generated just constant frequent media coverage about these issues of globalization, so on and so forth. So I started reading, I was like, wow, this is, this is so important, right? This is the fate of the world, so to speak, went to college. And I started in fall 2000 and 2000 to 2001 was the school year where for a lot of like college kids, if you wanted to be an activist, especially if you were like trying to do things outside of campus, which for better and for worse, um, globalization issues were the hot topic. So I just, I took classes. I got so interested, really kind of dedicated a lot of my studies and my uh, extracurriculars in college to this kind of global justice work. Uh, and then I got a job after uh, I finished college at Global Trade Watch, which is obviously an organization of importance um, in this story. And I tell this at the beginning of the book, but sitting in these staff meetings in this weird fishbowl room in the public citizen office, I just was fascinated by all of the historical elements that I was learning, but also were there, felt important, but I could not grasp on, right? So there'd be discussions where it's like, oh, but, you know, we have a not great relationship with this organization, or this organization has a not great relationship with this organization, you know, it'd be saying there, you know, lowly administrative staffer and be like, why? What? This seems really important and interesting. And so having had an interest in academia also, I decided to study it. So uh, the book was a way of trying to figure out and learn more deeply about the work that I'd been involved in you know, in a pretty modest way for those formative years. Yeah, that that's such a great origin story. And, and kind of something you do bring up in the introduction is this importance of history. 
And um, one of the things that's interesting is that the story that you are telling is one that isn't really well incorporated in the history of the left right now, right? And so, um, so, so what you are doing is sort of bringing that to the table and saying this is actually really important. Um, so let's let's start by talking about some of the terms you use. You talk about um, in the book this this group this loose coalition of actors that you call public interest progressivism. So what is that and how is it different from other kinds of social movements? Yeah. So what I think of, so I should say that there's a political scientist, Michael McCann, who termed the phrase public interest liberalism in the 1980s. And I heavily use that, but I decided to switch the term to progressivism, because I think this body of organizations includes groups who would certainly say, and I think are not liberal in the way that term has come to be understood in like the early 21st century United States political context. So it includes groups that are fairly radical in their analysis and objectives. But what I think ties it all together is an emphasis on expertise and kind of navigating and learning profoundly how different kinds of institutional systems function. So I think you could trace this kind of politics back a good ways. I mean, all as we historians are always hesitant to be like, and this is the person who invented this form of politics. But I think it, the early 20th century kind of progressive advocates, and I'm thinking especially of the kind of people who, you know, worked in early federal regulatory agencies, uh, is sort of a, an important origin point. But then especially it's like, all the new those New Deal technocrats, right, in the 1930s. I think that's a huge origin, or not even origin, but that's a huge moment for this kind of politics because it was people who, you know, one, right, we're talking about, especially in this era, a predominantly white, middle-class, and formally educated group of people who are not necessarily opposed to like social movement kind of activism, but see their role as the implementation of policy. So public interest progressives, that's kind of some of the backstory, but the what I identify as explicitly public interest progressives, I think it arise in some of the 1950s, but really the 1960s. Ralph Nader is a huge centerpiece for this, right? So Ralph Nader, um, lawyer who gets involved in consumer advocacy work and then starts all of these organizations, um, such as Public Citizen, the Public Interest Research Group. For him and for a lot of people who sort of inspired by him, kind of arise with him, In the 1960s, they're seeing a situation in which progressives who were worried about especially corporate power and exploitation of workers, environment, faulty and dangerous consumer products, 
so on and so forth, had won these really important fights, some in the 19-teens, but especially in the 1930s, 40s, right? There's a robust federal regulatory state. There's pretty strong trade unions, but they identify an issue, which is the long-term, essentially, and accountability over the long-term, right? You can pass a law, but as so many scholars are looking at, and certainly in the debates about like voting rights and other things, right? You can pass a law, but keeping that law enforced over decades, it's really difficult. Regulatory agencies can be underfunded. They can be sort of misdirected. They can be captured by the corporate interests they're trying to regulate. And so Nader and others saw this need for an outside of government political force working to essentially boost and strengthen the power of the federal regulatory state. And so that's where you get these public interest groups, right? Small professionalized nonprofits who are filled with people who know the intricacies of how Congress works, how federal regulatory agencies work, and are like pushing and prodding and backing, depending on the specific context, actors within those bodies to sort of do the best they could do. Uh, and so there's, there is some tensions there with other kinds of more formalized and like left social movements, right? These are folks who tend to be reformist. They're not as interested in mass movement mobilization. Although what I'd say with the 60s is they didn't really see a need for it, right? They won all these important victories without mass mobilization the way the civil rights movement did um, because they sort of used their expertise and they leveraged existing mass movements, especially labor, uh, or to improve the strength and also expand the regulatory state, right? Because this is the era when the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, and others, uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So that's kind of the milieu that they arise in. Uh, and the one other thing I'd say is that these movements in, or the, po- it's not a movement, um, public interest progressivism, I don't see it as sort of the liberal watered down, just alternative to the mass movements. I see them as just really doing different things and that the relationships between those two forces Broadly speaking, like the new left social movements, which of course is an incredibly diverse array of groups, and public interest progressivism is really complicated and contextual based on which which movements and groups you're talking about. That makes that makes sense. <laughs> so let's let that's kind of the domestic origin story for these groups, but the book that you're that you've written is really showing how this is a transnational movement. And these are groups that are really looking at, there is a changing transnational system of governance happening. And so how does that, um, so what, what you uh, come to is that this is a coalition rather than a single movement, right? That is, um, that starts to build itself around the idea of fair globalization. So what is, what is fairness and how does that help us understand 
something about this movement? That's a great question. And I spent a lot of time and discussions with my editor and others trying to figure out what the the right term would be. Because as I talk about, there's no agreed upon term for the, the political forces I'm talking about. Fairness struck me as a term that is frequently used by these groups. So fair trade right, is a term that's used again and again. And what I think fairness implies is a kind of like social democratic-ish reformist project, right? It's not equality, it's not even equity, but it's a politics of accountability and representation, Right. So it's and that's also where, you know, the the book's title, No Globalization Without Representation, right? That was the slogan the Sierra Club used for their presence at the Seattle protests. Right. And it's this idea that, okay, there's all these giant institutions, there's multinational corporations, there's international governance bodies like the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund. There, there's government, right? But government is also, right, it, it's congressional committees, it's subcommittees, it's executive uh, um, it branches, it's regulatory agencies. That for them, fairness meant that sort of the citizenry, and I think, you know, sort of a side note is that was a term they were using at a time when I don't think it had the same connotations of exclusion of undocumented people that it does today. Um, not that there aren't complexities with the immigration politics of some of the groups I discuss, but still that sort of citizens have a right to have a real presence in the decision-making processes of these institutions and bodies, right? So that was a core demand. And what public interest groups saw themselves doing is being the intermediaries and there's both a, an elitist part of this, but also one that in some ways makes sense where, you know, reading some of the documents, there'd be places where some of these sort of early public interest lawyers, you know, would just be talking about kind of what does this representation mean? And it's like, they basically conclude that like, look, there are people who are paid huge salaries to be corporate lawyers who spend all of their time just learning how these agencies work. So it's kind of an unfair expectation that just like everyday people who are working, you know, like really hard jobs and everything will also have the time to learn like that level of detail. So we will try to be the intermediaries who like create legible, easy to understand explanations of what's going on and like advocate on behalf of people. Which again, I think is a situation that both inherently creates an elitist and like troubling dynamic, but also is one that I think makes sense and isn't just premised on elitism. So, so that was sort of fairness as far as governance. And then I also think fairness was just a more anodyne social democratic kind of view that like, right, there should be a strong regulatory state. There should be strong unions. Corporations shouldn't be able to abuse the environment, abuse workers. Um, abuse consumers that, right, the government should be a very robust provider of 
to some extent social welfare, but for the groups I'm looking at, it was more, you know, the main check and balance on corporate power. So the protector of citizens. Exactly. Um, But again, also not that it's the only thing, right? Um, Because they were seeing the faults in government that they felt needed to be kind of, I guess you can use a dam metaphor that they saw certain holes in the dam and they were like, well, we will be the plugs in those. Yeah. And one of the things I think that is interesting about your story, as you say, it's not, this is not quite the same as some of the popular social movements, but this is, this allows you to tell a story of a kind of vibrant progressive movement at a time when, um, at the end of the Cold War, there's this idea that, you know, individual rights are replacing collective rights and, and social movements are getting kind of, uh, or the left is, is falling apart in some ways in the face of a new neoliberal project. And what, what your book shows is that there are people who are in the name of fairness, in the name of maybe this kind of anodyne social democracy, who are really struggling to hold on to these pieces of kind of collective rights or or of um, economic issues, especially in the face of of what is changing. Um, so your book starts with your book starts in the seventies, and and as you said, it ends with the Battle of Seattle. Um, so let's talk about Nestle. What um, what made that the starting point and what happened there? Yeah. So a core piece, right, of this whole public interest progressive politics is an identification of large corporations as the central social problem in global society, even. So with Nestle, why I chose to start there is that there had been past campaigns right, about various kinds of global justice issues and even sort of corporate exploitation of the the quote-unquote third world, right? So there's all kinds of like Black internationalist campaigns around like U.S. banks and military occupations in the Caribbean in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, right? There um, were already anti, uh, you know, campaigns challenging multinational corporations doing business in apartheid era South Africa, right? That's not a thing that starts in the 80s. That's happening in the 50s and 60s. But with Nestle, what I saw was, again, hesitant to say the very first campaign, but it seems likely the first campaign that really took off that was sort of involved public interest groups that targeted multinationals but where the issue wasn't sort of multinationals as kind of water carriers for another more geographically specific form of oppression, right? So it wasn't, oh, Bank of America or, or Citibank are like, ex, you know, part of U.S. empire in Haiti, right? Um, or like Ford has factories in South Africa, right? But where the campaign was still more about ending apartheid or ending like the U.S. occupation. Here it was multinational corporations all around the world are doing exploitative practices and using their power in those ways. And the way to respond to that seems to be some sort of global effort to check corporate power. Because I think one of the key things is there's kind of a 
a baton handoff with Nestle so quickly with what the Nestle issue was is that, you know, Nestle was the biggest, but there are a number of other multinational corporations who were selling breast milk substitutes all over the global South. Now that's a very complicated issue, right? The politics of breastfeeding versus like substitutes is, is really nuanced and complicated, but the activist critique was mainly that the company's marketing and advertising was not just like there are alternatives and we know some people have problems with breastfeeding. So like there's an alternative. It was like, this is modernity. Like you must use this product. Like we will send these fake nurses into the newborns wards to like convince you that this product is necessary. And also that it was expensive and that it was not necessary. Like, you know, some of these products needed refrigeration, which not everyone had access to, especially, right? Like if you're thinking about more impoverished countries, rural areas in the 1970s. So that was the critique. Uh, right. So companies are saying, this is better in all cases. This is the modern way of doing things. This is what you need to do to take care of your children. And in some cases, telling that to people who had breast milk they could use and didn't have refrigeration and didn't have money to buy it. So they would water down formula or something exactly, like that. Exactly. Exactly. So it could have really, I mean, you know, infants could die because of this, certainly get sick, right? So it was a real public health emergency that a growing number of public health professionals starting in the 1930s really had been pointing out. But by the early 70s, there was this real frustration in that community. And I quote this one, um, one of the most prominent doctors basically saying, we've hit the point where like, we kind of need some sort of nader campaign solution to this problem. Uh, you know, which was one of those co- quotes where I was like, thank you for writing the exact thing I needed for that transition. That <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I then tie that to this kind of inchoate group of activists, many coming out of sort of the anti-war movement and various parts of second wave feminism, who for, you know, on a variety of different paths, were becoming interested in multinational corporate power and sort of exploitation in the third world. Um, key among them was Liam Margulies, who was at the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, and is like, just a very cool person. Like she was in the uh, New Haven Women's Liberation Rock Band. And I, I was like that, okay, that's like the coolest thing I can imagine. Um, there are some really excellent characters in this story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so she was she was working at this interfaith corporate responsibility nonprofits that was sort of started by a number of mainline Protestant churches and some Catholic orders to do corporate accountability work. And, you know, she was field testing different campaigns with their members, right? Because they had these churches that she had access to. So she'd speak at congregations. And the infant formula issue was just by far the one that got people the most interested, the most angry, the, um, the most inspired to do something. And, you know, she saw it and the other people who worked on it were not people coming at it initially from a public health perspective, they were coming out from a corporate power perspective, but they saw a really good campaign, 
And so you know, that came together and they, you know, it started with this like local boycott in Minneapolis, but then quickly spread national and then went global. And, you know, it, we can talk more about it, but it just seemed like a really important um, initial point for the campaign. And also one of the main people who started the whole Nestle campaign, Mark Ritchie, is someone who's just like important through the whole story. Uh, and I thought that, you know, that was also, you know, when I saw that, I was like, wait, Mark Ritchie, right? Like also the guy who kind of helped bring attention to the creation of the WTO to these activists. Also the guy who is really important in like anti-NAFTA activism. Also, I was like, okay, like this is obviously pretty important. So, so the Nestle uh, campaign starts in 77, right? And so what's next? How does this then become a kind of new model for global activism? Yeah. So, you know, they're doing this boycott and, and it's like a pretty, successful and wide-ranging boycott, uh, a lot due to the support of mainline Protestant churches, right? And sort of getting whole congregations to to join in. But as the activists were doing this, they were like, but what's next, right? We can boycott Nestle, but it's, you know, this Swiss multinational corporation. And we're not sure we're just going to make them like do what we want through a, a mainly U.S.-based boycott. And the, sort of a key moment is that there's these Senate hearings in 1978 where the Nestle representatives really embarrassed them himself. Um, and that uh, hearing was chaired by Senator Ted Kennedy. And Kennedy had been in contact and sort of was fil- facilitating dialogue among all these different actors with the World Health Organization, who had long had an interest in the issue, but now there was sort of the sufficient pressure generated by the boycott and the controversies. Uh, it was helping to crystallize for some action. So World Health Organization and UNICEF kind of took up having a big meeting in 1979 about this. And here's where sort of these like anti-war feminists, new lefty veterans who are kind of dipping their toes in the more like professionalized public interest world kind of become true hybrids because, you know, now they're jetting off to Geneva and they're having to learn all the this technical stuff with how like these UN bodies operate and out of that comes the idea of a code of conduct um, for these companies now codes of conduct for multinationals were not new and this is where another critical piece of this is you know i've talked about the domestic u.s political context but in the 70s the international political context is that you know a, a quite a collection of third world states with governments that, you know, vary from like Ferdinand Marcos's like kleptocratic right-wing autocracy to like Michael Manley's like democratic socialist experiment in Jamaica have agreed to this idea of a set of demands for a new international economic order that they're pushing through the United Nations, which is, um, they're, this is very imprecise, but it's like vaguely a global social democratic reordering of the world economy, right? So it's not the like 
revolutionary Marxist overthrow, but it's a deeper form of how the governance and the economic policies of the world economy function in order to uplift global South countries. And that part of their demands had been for regulation of multinational corporations and even like codes of conduct. So, so the thing happening with Nestle is not new, but it also is more specific, right? It's to a particular industry and it's got this growingly global coalition behind it. So the new model of organizing that Anwar Fazal, um, who's a fascinating character, I'd be happy to talk about more character. He's a human being. Um, uh, is talking about is this mix of sort of professionalized advocacy at the level of international governance bodies, mainly the United Nations, to create some kind of regulatory structures constraining exploitative practices or hopefully eliminating at least some practices by multinationals that is backed by transnational advocacy networks and then localized and national more kind of like i'm not sure if militant is the right word but like very explicitly politicized campaigning including things like boycotts and protests um so th that was the new model of global organizing that was seemed to be arising in the very end of the 1970s so you've got these this confluence of kind of different forces at the level of um, countries who are demanding uh, different kinds of representation in global governance bodies, and you've got local activists in different countries trying to use regulatory structures domestically, and then also seeing that internationally coming together. Um, so yeah, so let's talk more about who is Anwar Fazal. What is uh, what are some of the actors in this? In this yeah. So uh, one of the things that I really hope someone with like the background, the language skills that everything would do is write a history of uh, Penang as like a hub of global activism. So, you know, Penang's in Western Malaysia. You know, the main city is Georgetown. Um, and it's just been this hub for centuries. One of these places you know, I'm, I'm going outside my knowledge bounds a bit, but, you know, in reading about it, it sounded a little bit how people describe like Moorish era Spain or Jerusalem at certain point, just like one of these places where a lot of different distinct cultures and societies intermingle through trade and where that creates a, a like somewhat more cosmopolitan world. Certainly, you know, nothing is ever like the Star Trek dreamland, but, you know, some, something where like a lot of cultures were really interacting. And it's also been kind of a center of dissent for a long time. And Fazal was a student uh, and had gotten involved in just kind of very local, more like community service things. And then he became involved with the rise in the early... 70s of the Consumers Association of Penang, which was on the surface a consumer rights group, but really it was a way for sort of progressive people in Malaysia to advocate around all kinds of ecological questions, economic inequality questions, and others without 
raising the ire of the government too much because consumer advocacy on its surface can be really safe as a politics, right? It's just like, we're making capitalism work like somewhat better, right? Uh, You know, we're not challenging the fundamentals of the system, but the way especially the Consumers Association talked about is like, you know, for them, consumerism wasn't just like, you know, well, I guess so it's the early 70s, like buying a second vinyl player or whatever, right? But it's like, consumerism was like food, wa- like clean water, like basic, basics of life. Exactly. Right. The um, Right. That like humans have to consume certain things in order to survive. Right. And so... He got really involved with that. And the Consumers Association of Penang had some really strong successes that uh, kind of helped raise the attention. But he also was very proactive in getting more transnational with an organization, the International Organization of Consumer Unions, um, which was a body that just linked different consumer rights groups around the world. And he just... I mean, he's an incredibly impressive organizer and manager and rose the ranks. So he became the president of that entire body, which, right, this is pretty impressive, right? He, he's someone now certainly like a very formally educated kind of like legibly middle class person. But the IOCU is mainly like Western European, US, Canadian, Australian, like predominantly white, politically quite moderate like big consumer rights organizations. Um, And he becomes the president of this organization in the late seventies. And he's like, well, I'm going to do as much as I can with this. So he funnels a lot of support to kind of more politically progressive third world groups. And he's crucial to this campaign, not just being a boycott in the U S but a global campaign. It's it's those characters that are so interesting because on the one hand this this book is kind of centered in the U.S. but in um, in a very transnational way thinking about how these um, some U.S. based actors started really connecting with a bunch of other found very similar interests in um, sort of across the world and so I'm I'm going to jump questions a little bit but this is this one of the things you bring up. Um, in the middle of your book is this is kind of also a story about U.S.-based activists learning that they're not um, just going to come in and save third world countries, right? That there's, there is actually, is in the case of, of people like coming in and um, taking lead of these governing bodies, there's, there's not this idea of we will bring better things to the rest of the world, but like we actually have to work with and be allies to or conspirators with. So, um, and it, one of the things that's interesting about this is that some of these consumer activist groups, or, or at least some of these anti-globalization groups, they there is a xenophobic edge to this, right? We've we've seen that in in the last five years that that there is a way of casting these struggles as um, drawing up the drawbridge rather than uh, working across borders. And so, um, how are those some of those struggles present in the? Yeah, that's a. I mean. One of the things is that in some of these earliest campaigns, there's more of an explicit focus on the transnational 
but there's a lot of internal conflict over the very questions you're asking about, right? So I have an anecdote in the book about discussions over um, imagery for the Nestle boycott and right, whether you use the sort of classic emaciated brown or black child image. And, you know, what I found really interesting in some of the, the memos back and forth was this tension of sort of like being really true to kind of a maximally internationalist progressive value set and also some of the kind of road testing of ways of getting more people involved. Because especially, right, a boycott works when more people are involved, right? A boycott is especially a kind of campaign where like maximum participation in a relatively easy to do thing is important. And so there were these discussions of like, yeah, but it seems like these problematic images are what get more people involved. And and I tried to, and I could very much self-critique myself on this, but what I tried to do with like presenting that argument, some of the others was present the kind of the details of the two arguments and have the reader kind of come to a conclusion of what they think the pragmatic choice was, but I think I was starting there though from an assumption that, and also from showing it that these weren't like unthinking expressions of paternalism, right? Like that there's awareness by these activists, right? And these are activists who are like predominantly white, but they're people who are like, this is the 1970s. A lot of them were like at least tangentially involved in the civil rights Act, you know, black freedom activism and other things, right? So it's not like they never heard these ideas of that, like white activism could be paternalistic or that sort of thing. And so I, I feel very ambivalent about some of the choices made in, in those early campaigns around some of it. Now, there's certainly a story I tell about kind of how the boycott wrapped up where I think the U.S. activists just like fell into kind of privileging themselves, putting their interests above third world actors um, as far as kind of like negotiating essentially an end to the boycott without consultation with like global South or even Western European actors. Right. So it's it's a messy story. There's another aspect. And I don't know if we want to like transition to get to there of talking about this with like the NAFTA fight and everything. I also am sorry if my answers are actually overly long. <laughs> no, this is this is really great. I I think we should transfer. I think we should jump to NAFTA. So so my question is, we've we've started with Nestle, um, and NAFTA is a different kind of thing, right? This is not one company. This is a global trade deal that could sort of set the terms for a number of different, um, not just the Western Hemisphere, but but across the world. So. So let's talk about NAFTA. What what happens there? Yeah. So very quickly, I have sort of a, a section in my book that kind of transitions from this late 70s, early 80s, milieu through the 80s, and kind of just retelling the story of the, the third world debt crisis and the rise of uh, global neoliberalism. And, um, things in which the actors I look at are more kind of observers than participants in a lot of cases. And then we have the North American Free Trade Agreement. And what NAFTA is, 
this is going to be a really weird analogy, but I'm just going to go with it for a second. So there's an interesting conversation that one of the reasons like QAnon has caught on and stuck so well is that it is, um, it's just like the fusion of all these other conspiracy theories into one like overarching grand conspiracy theory. And that's sort of what NAFTA is to neoliberal governance. It was like taking all these things like that had been in like bilateral investment treaties and like other like like bilateral agreements and like other things. And it's just like we're going to put it all together into this like grand amalgam that will become the new like single model for the future. So obviously not making a direct comparison between the two, but it's like a dynamic that's like interestingly parallel. So NAFTA, I mean, I think one of the things that's really was interesting for me with NAFTA is that it's like the initial boosters of it are mainly like the Mexican economic and political elite, mainly like President Carlos Salinas. Um who are looking around and seeing like European economic integration, the rise of East Asian economies, and have been doing neoliberal economic reform, but see a need, especially with the whole sketchiness of him probably not winning the 1988 election, and like it should have been a, a leftist. Uh, And being like, we need not just national, but international mechanisms that lock in neoliberal economic reform. And so that's essentially some of the origin of NAFTA, right? Uh, Only like five of NAFTA's, oh, I'm blanking on the number of chapters, but it's like a relatively small amount of NAFTA is actually just like lowering tariffs and other like direct material barriers to trade. And much more of it is like investment protection provisions. So Salinas basically kind of pitches NAFTA as a way to get Mexico secured into this free trade neoliberal model. But then what happens with NAFTA as far as U.S. domestic politics is it brings sort of international neoliberalism home, right, in a way that hadn't been done before, right? NAFTA is going to accelerate the decline of um, manufacturing in the U.S., of certain kinds of agriculture, right? It's going to lock in these kind of investment protections that are going to potentially challenge domestic U.S. environmental laws at the federal and state level. And so it just, you know, because it's this amalgam of different kinds of neoliberal governance, it also implicates so many more different constituencies. And so that's where kind of I see a transition and the rise of what I call the Fair Globalization Coalition, right, as this political force where public interest groups are, are kind of the coordinators and the um, in some ways the center of it, but then the actual po- or the significant political muscle is organized labor, and then you also have family farm groups uh, involved as well, right? Because again, they're all going to be affected. So I I really like this framing of NAFTA bringing austerity politics home, or in in a way, kind of like combining austerity politics with 
the forms of neoliberal governance that really make it nearly impossible or at least much more difficult for um, government agencies and regulatory groups to sort of make inroads on the privileges of of um, capital and and investments yeah. and things like that. Well, and quickly, I'd say one of the things about NAFTA, because I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was saying part of doing this whole book was like going back and figuring out what I'd been doing all these years. What's interesting is that sort of figuring out that, you know, the strength of NAFTA is not so much that like, its provisions and the enforcement of them are so powerful that they override all the other things. But it's, it's a lot of this kind of works on fear, right? Of, of like, like that you might not even bother passing the new regulation because it might trigger sort of a NAFTA thing, right? It just adds another layer of like potential hardship. To it, And I think that's a really interesting, important point about some of this neoliberal governance is not that it's so intrinsically strong, but it just creates an added level of uncertainty and concern for like progressive political forces about trying to push for anything they want. Would it, would it be fair to say that it changes the terms of the conversation? So it makes it harder to even think this is something that a government can and should regulate. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, it's a, an overused political science term, but like it, it changes the Overton window. Right. Some way, right? It, it yeah. alters what the, the boundaries of acceptable dialogue are. And I'm talking about this more in the U.S. context. In the Mexico context, while it still isn't overridingly powerful, right, it's like it's that same dynamic, but right intensified because the Mexican government doesn't have the same kind of political muscle to contend, you know, with the U.S. using a NAFTA provision as like the U.S. does contending with like Canada challenging some U.S. environmental law through NAFTA. Right, right. Um, so, so NAFTA is one of those things that brings up a whole host of constituencies, right? You've got you've got people who are angry about this, you've got the labor unions, you've got environmental groups, you've got family farm things, you everyone. Um and how but but the but NAFTA gets passed, right? So what's the story of the sort of activism against that and raising the alarm? Yeah, so I think quickly to sort of headline all of this, the passage of NAFTA was an outcome that looked incredibly uncertain till a few weeks before it actually was passed. Right. I think that that's a crucial point is that this didn't start as like the, you know, it's hopeless, but we got to fight anyway because it's the right thing to do. It started as like, it seems like it's, it's pretty plausible. This could be defeated. Uh, So what it does is Right, you have all these different constituencies, but as I talk about a little bit and wish I could have explored more, is that there's a bunch of intra-liberal tensions in the US, right? Like some of the public interest, right? You know, there's environmentalists and labor conflicts, and those are some of the best known, like the spotted owl and, and other things. But, you know, but there's also these tensions like you know, like Nader and some of the public interest groups had supported certain kinds of deregulation and the unions were unhappy about that. And then also some of the public interest groups had like some pretty biting, and I'd say sort of from the left critiques of like, 
like parts of organized labor for just being like not willing to fight and so right so it's just, there's this big mess of conflicts but NAFTA offers a chance for a bunch of different key progressive groups to work together in common cause but then you know going back to your question about kind of xenophobia to some extent also like more specifically questions of just like kind of internationalism but also political strategy and tactics there are actually two fair globalization coalitions in the United States that kind of arise. So the first is the Alliance for Responsible Trade, which had a series of other names um, before settling on that. And that is a coalition of like think tanks uh, really spearheaded by the Institute for Policy Studies, the sort of like big name on the U.S. left starting in it started in the early 60s, but became a major player on the left in like the mid-late 60s. Some internationally focused kind of development policy NGOs, which were very much not the like, like, we're going to help people build like a school in, you know, Kenya that's actually not like built correctly for like the specifics. But, you know, our groups that are like IMF structural adjustment, austerity programs are bad, right? Like they, they have a politicized and progressive view. And also some other actors, the United Electrical Workers, which is, you know, more left wing and more internationalist union in the U.S. and others. And the Alliance for Responsible Trade has a much more internationalist analysis they're much more closely linked with like the main Remalk, um, which is the main Mexican network opposed to NAFTA, but closer with Canadian groups. And they see NAFTA more in the way I described it as like the next step in sort of this ongoing process of neoliberal economic governance. They see trying to defeat NAFTA is important, but building the movements across borders and within the different countries is actually in some ways maybe more important. Um, they were more skeptical that NAFTA could be defeated. Then on the other hand, you have the citizens trade campaign um, sort of spearheaded with like friends of the earth, public citizen, the Institute for agriculture and trade policy, which is Mark Ritchie's group. And those organizations are much more like Capitol Hill lobbying based. And they're like, no, we're going to kill this thing. But they also have a pretty good and, and at least internationalist friendly analysis, which is they're like, if we're ever going to stop neoliberal governance from deepening, much less push it back, like we need a concrete political victory like immediately. And so again, this is one of those things where as I was reading the documents, I mean, look, I, you know, will confess, I to some extent know a lot of these folks and, and I still feel ambivalent uh, in some ways about it, but I wanted to present that I thought they both had like pretty decent overarching political analyses, even if they then led in some divergent ways. But so those, those two groups arise and the CTC also has strong links with some specific unions, um, especially like the Teamsters uh, and the steel, United Steelworkers. And there are definitely tensions between the two um, that, that continue, but also 
and this is one of the big themes in the whole book is that uh, I think that like often some of the most productive activism comes from when groups are in enough contact to not actively undermine each other's efforts, but otherwise are sort of working in kind of parallel, even if they're going in very different places. And that's something that somewhat worked with the NAFTA fight because like the art groups really helped ensure that there was a more internationalist element to this, right? They were constantly helping to bring like, you know, uh, members of Mexican opposition parties, you know, uh, folks who were like involved in think tanks, unionists, farm advocates, to the U.S., but that the CTC was sort of helping to co-sponsor some of these things, um, and then CTC just did have the more direct, like, political ground game. And I mean, they made NAFTA this like slog and this like knockout, dragout lobbying fight that really sort of comes down to the wire. And you know, from my analysis. I'm not getting too much into what ifs, but I think like there's a realistic scenario where a few things go differently and NAFTA like loses by a small margin. Um, and that's to say, going to your question of importance, that they wage this really impressive political battle that just makes it so that free trade is going to be a very controversial subject from then on out, right? We yeah. still talk about Freaking NAFTA, right? That was like somehow one of the main issues in 2016. Right. Like bizarrely <laughs> so, but uh, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So, so lost the battle, but um, you know, really changed the terms of the conflict. And, and it's true that NAFTA is an easy rallying cry that um, certainly I remember <laughs> and, um, and is weirdly something, yeah, that is politically relevant to the students I teach now who are, 20 years younger than me, right? So um, yeah, and that that is very interesting. So let's talk about another thing that I was, as someone who's not a US historian, I was kind of surprised by is you you talk about how this, this drag out fight, um, you know, NAFTA was not the big victory for the progressive coalitions that it could have been. But after NAFTA, there are a series of kind of wins and political high watermarks in the 90s. So can you talk about what the late 90s looked like? Yeah. So after, so there's sort of this nadir moment where, you know, I pinpoint is January like 1st, 95, where it's like, like NAFT, like the WTO is created and goes into effect and like NAFTA is in effect and everything seems terrible. And then basically what happens is, you know, some of the predictions about NAFTA come true. Right, like including things that they didn't even quite expect. Like the progressive groups didn't think that some of the investment protections were necessarily that important to focus on. But then all of a sudden you have these things where it's, you know, it's like, hey, there's this California environmental law and like this Canadian company is going to challenge as like suing through a NAFTA, you know, tribunal or like there's a, 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 a toxic waste dump in Mexico where, you know, the Mexican government's trying to clean it up and you know the US company is like no you can't do that NAFTA blah, blah. and you know jobs are moving uh over you know like you know in some cases and it can be overstated right but there are things where it's just literally like there's steel workers here it's like okay you're losing your job a group of mexican workers are going to come here you're going to train them on how like 
to do your job. And then the, this factor is moving to Mexico, right? And so they will like, do your job for pennies on the dollar. Right, for right. Pe- right exactly. Um, you know, which creates a variety, right? That both to, often led to more kind of xenophobia, but also sometimes more internationalism. But so just like this stuff is happening, right? Like NAFTA, and then there's the, the financial collapse in Mexico, right? Where, you know, that's brought on by all this speculation that can at least be somewhat traced to like, not specific provisions of NAFTA, but NAFTA's passage being like, Mexico, open for business, great neoliberal place for all your like hot investments. Um, you know, and I'm using hot in that case of like temporary and like quickly. <laughs> so that's all happening. And then, so that's one piece. A second piece is similar to the 80s moment in these periods where there's not specific campaigns and when things aren't going so well, building tighter connections can be really important. So like the CTC hires um, Mike Dolan as a grassroots organizer, and he helps her revivify like grassroots groups involved with the Citizens Trade Campaign. People at the Alliance for Responsible Trade especially help um, get going the International Forum on Globalization, which becomes this global space for really fascinating conversations uh, about kind of the nature of neoliberal globalization, even like modernity. I think I made a joke in it that like reading those, the minutes of those meetings sound like a grad school, like sociology, like seminar. And I was like, I'm so here for this. It's fascinating. Uh, And so, and then the last thing in the US context, and this will, you know, sound odd because generally, and I would agree with this, that like, the form of political polarization happening in the U.S. is not healthy, but it kind of works for these groups. Um, so let me say how all that comes together more specifically. In a U.S. context, there's two big sort of later 90s neoliberal initiatives. One is to renew Fast Track, which is this piece of legislation that just limits Congress's role in designing free trade agreements, right? Like they can have hearings and stuff, but they can't really amend it. It's basically an up or down vote. So it has to be renewed every few years. There's a big renewal fight in 97, 98, and all this anger over NAFTA combined with the revivification of the grassroots, combined with some new information technologies, combined with political polarization allows for a win, right? They defeat the renewal of Fast Track. And like the fair globalizers are pretty at the center of this. And I was really happy to find like a business roundtable strategy memo that would basically said that, right? Because there's often these discussions with activism of like, okay, but is that the reason this thing happened? Or was it like larger political economic forces and activists were just like shouting? But then I find this long strategy memo where they're like, unions environmentalists are really causing a lot of problems. Like we got (laughs) to deal with this. And I was like, Okay, done. Um, looks looks like this is yeah, this was the issue, then, right? But then also this like polarization um, issues where it's like, you know, the Republicans want fast track, but they also don't want to give Bill Clinton any wins. And then especially <laughs> later on, right? There's the whole thing of like, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, what is the right term? I mean, like 
gross abuse of Monica Lewinsky, right? And the whole yeah. scandal that that generates um, being like, he's like, well, I need to have every Democrat on board with me. And most Democrats in Congress don't like fast track. So I'm going to kind of abandon it. The second thing is the multilateral agreement on investment, which I like also did an article with a, a friend who's a political scientist about and is an amazing story, which was this attempt to create a kind of global agreement that was like super corporate power, <laughs> like just like give the multinationals like all kinds of protections and other things that is defeated through transnational advocacy. Um, where like the network that had been built some during NAFTA, some during the eighties, a lot in the mid nineties go from like grad student seminar to like effective political force, right? Where you have these global meetings and like the World Wide web is really important because people can like communicate easily and like send PDFs like faster than like shipping them on like international flights and boxes. Um, and, and MAI is defeated because right, you have like countries working through the OECD um, negotiating. And so the OECD is the main, like mostly kind of Western Europe and like the global North countries, but right. It's a, like France is not the U S is not New Zealand is not Japan. Right. And so when you have these activist groups in these different countries, what they're doing is like a strategy called monkey wrenching, which in this case meant kind of intensifying the disagreements between the negotiators of the different countries that ends up like the French are the first to fall. And it's a lot about sort of this French cultural pride where the French groups are basically like with MAI, right? Like we're never going to have, you know, another like John Paul Belmundo, right? Like there'll only be like George Clooney's from here on out, right? Like uh -huh, no French uh -huh. movies, no. Um, and so they defeat it. And, and that's a huge victory that, you know, again, is partly contextual, right? Like I said, with information technology that only a few years had not been as available and other things, but also is really like the learned experience of these groups in, in experimenting at different levels of political struggle. So MAI for the US groups is mainly one at the local level and the international level. It's one at like getting city councils to speak out against MAI. And it's one at like the global negotiating level. Um, and I think that was partly right, just like the experience and of doing campaigning and learning what, you know, which um, fields to struggle on at which moments. That's a really fascinating story. And, and it's one of those things where things not getting worse is a hard headline to write. But if you look at the actual, um, the struggle, it's a really exciting campaign at a moment that um, doesn't doesn't have um, a lot of exciting, you know, sort of leftist victories. <laughs> we don't remember uh, those moments in that way. Um, so the next, so so your story ends with the Battle of Seattle, and so this is the part that I know we're both excited about because I was also in high school at this moment. I was just developing my political consciousness, and I actually moved to the Pacific Northwest in a couple years later. Right. And so, so like this was a, a watershed. Um, but I do think it's one that 
that we're, and we'll talk about this has been sort of overshadowed by 9-11, the war on terror, um, all of those things. So, so what was, um, why Seattle and, um, what was happening there? Yeah. So, so the world trade organization was the reason, right? Like they were having a meeting and that was the reason the world trade organization had arisen in the kind of late eighties, early nineties as another form of like expanding neoliberal economic governance, right? You had a, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which is a very narrow body negotiating literally, you know, that was the thing. Um, Lori would always say, uh, you know, in those staff meetings, you know, to understand GATT, it was like GATT was about anything that you could drop your foot on, right? That was negotiations over like physical objects, whereas the World Trade Organization was about, you know, intellectual property rights and agriculture and, ser- you know, services, which is the most broad term for so many different economic sectors. So it had... It, um, been negotiated over a number of years, um, started in 95, was moving forward. And they have these ministerial meetings every couple of years, which are intended to be grand negotiations to like kind of confirm and expand the powers. The Clinton administration going off the, you know, sort of the defeats with MAI and especially Fast Track really wanted to send a signal that like the U.S. was still in the like globalization game, which, right, we should read as like the neoliberal capitalist globalization game. Uh, And so, you know, wanted to host it. And there was these deliberations. And I don't know if maybe there are archives hidden somewhere that explain this, but there were these three cities in the U.S. that they were looking between uh, San Diego, Honolulu, and Seattle. And so like the advocates in like fair globalization, some of the more left grassroots activist organizations were like watching this. And I was like, okay, San Diego is like partly a big military town and, you know, especially in the nineties, fairly conservative. So they're like, hopefully not that Honolulu, you know, people would be like, I mean, I wish it had been in Honolulu, but like we could not have, but you we know, would not have flown there. Well, and also especially like the AFL-CIO could not have afforded to fly like 20,000 union members to Honolulu. But that, but so everyone was like, but Seattle, Seattle would be awesome. And then the funny thing is, right. They choose Seattle, but from the like WTO Clinton administration corporate end, it's like, right. Their conception of Seattle is like Starbucks, Amazon, like, you know, a city that's super dependent on global trade, right? So they're like, Seattle is like the neoliberal city of the future for the activists. It's like Seattle, also home of like a militant labor movement and like surrounded by Yeah, the Teamsters these, are excited about this. Right? And right. it's like also like all these radical environmentalists, right? Right. And we've like, got radical and, environmentalists. Yeah. We've got like shipping. We've got all these yeah. things. And also for the groups I kind of more focus on, the public interest progressives, it's also just like, and Seattle's also just full of like a fair number of like liberal people right maybe Mm -hmm. who aren't like as engaged or as militant but are like there and can be activated through like their sierra club chapter or something like that so then you know what i wanted to do is kind of tell the sort of the parallel stories of you know that there are sort of battles in seattle there are that create a battle in seattle um and it's been told about and will be told about you know some of the the more radical activism. And so I wanted to 
also kind of just follow the story of the the groups I was concerned with. Um, and in particular, a piece of the story of Seattle I think is super interesting is the international activist component, right? Of like groups like um, the Third World Network and Martin Core, um, again based in in Penang in Malaysia, uh, who are working on sort of a, you know, the the a global version of the public interest model where it's like you're working with sympathizers in government, in this case, like global South governments to like push them to take more, even if not progressive stances, just stances that like slow the neoliberal role. So all of this is coming together. And and as I said before, but I think Seattle really shows it. I really, and this came from, from, the study and talking to people, I think Seattle works because they, most of the actors kind of avoided stepping on each other's toes. And then I think, so let me break down maybe quickly who all the, some of the actors are, right? There's all these people in Seattle who are organizing, right? So there's college students, there's various like um, people of color groups, like there's Philippine groups that are uh, Philippine American groups that are, are, really important as one example. There's the unions that there's sort of the local labor movement. And then you have like the full fair globalization coalition. So like the Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, Public Citizen, and then like the AFL-CIO and all its member unions and all organizing. And then you also have the Ruckus Society and the Direct Action Network, which are more West Coast civil disobedience kind of groups. And then you have the Black Bloc who are, you know, I was going to say anarchists, but a lot of people in, in Direct Action Network and Ruckus also identified as anarchists. But you know, there's a difference, at least on tactics, where Black Bloc proactively thinks property destruction is like an important tool of activism. Direct Action Network and Ruckus I don't think they have really moral objection. Like they don't have moral objections to property discussion, but they have tactical efficacy. They think there are other ways of, of making a scene or being civilly disobedient. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, the truth is like the romance of the battle in Seattle, as far as like the shutting down the meeting was the direct action network, ruckus society and local Seattle activists. Like that's who actually shut it down. Many of them being like leftists of sort of kind of socialist or anarchist views, but not the people who are doing property destruction, but the people who like chain themselves and shut down like roadways um, and blocked physically blocked people from entering. so, so that is like, you know, that's kind of the core romantic moment of the battle in Seattle and in some ways the most effective. But then you also had what the public interest groups I focus on, their contributions were all of these educational events, right? Like so that people knew a little bit about what the hell the WTO was and like, you know, at least had some talking points, if not you know, more, they helped bring some of the key, like, Global South voices, so like Martin Kaur and Vandana Shiva, to be present. They organized some of the bigger, non-disruptive, but still very, like, present and message-focused rallies. 
they did a lot of the back logistical work of just like for people coming out of town of like renting spaces and everything. And then a smaller group of them were inside working, especially with some global South negotiators to provide them like logistical support and also trying to push them to be more resistant to whatever the US and the EU were pressing. And then the unions just, I mean, the unions provided like the huge numbers of people on the streets. So it was like, kind of a mess, you know, but, um, you know, it's kind of a, what, what I'm trying to now remember a messy it's miracle. A mess, messy miracle. I love yeah. that phrase. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, when I saw that Rebecca Solnit had written an essay about Seattle, I was like, well, this will be full of beautifully phrased terms that I can <laughs> like hopefully borrow, um, uh, and good analysis. So, so that is like, a very messy retelling of the battle in Seattle, Mm -hmm. but the kind of quick version of it is like, you know, there are all these events planned. There was some amount of at least like dialogue among the different groups, except for the black Bloc, who really operated on their own. The nonviolent direct action did shut down the meeting for a while. And then you just had these days and days of protests that helped in a variety of ways that I could go into. And I go into in the book, basically, tank the meeting and it has no nothing is progressed on from that meeting um it's a failure and you know that was sort of like right then you get this trinity for the u.s fair globalizers right they defeat fast track they defeat mai and they tank the wto meeting and then you know as i talk about maybe uh maybe we will like also sort of seattle creates this moment where it's like oh more than a coalition. Like now maybe we're a social movement. Right. Right. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things about this story and the way you tell it is it shows how all these different levels of activism and coalition building work together. Right. So you have, sure, there are people on the street who are smashing windows, but you also have um, people chaining themselves to things. You have puppets, you have education campaigns, you have unions, you have, but all of these things work together to create so that when the meeting shuts down and the media comes, there's a narrative. Mm-hmm. And exactly that narrative is backed up by policy people who have lobbying connections, who have all these different levels. And so it's not just what, what is it here? It is a, it is a clear story that gets, um, you know, sent across the country and, and internationally as well. Um, and so, so one of the things, one of the questions I have is, what does it mean to sort of tank the meeting? Like, what is that? Um, yeah. Like, so, what's the long-term effect of that, I guess? Right. So I, what was going to be happening in Seattle from the perspective of the negotiators from like the U.S. governments and the EU governments would be, you know, just further negotiations of getting WTO's mandate over more and more sectors of the economy, right? So more cutting of tariffs, you know, more provisions around intellectual property rules, which, you know, I think we'll talk about this at the very end, but at the, in the late nineties, the real question with the WTO was around um, some of the early HIV AIDS medications and the WTO being another barrier to mass producing those drugs and bringing their costs down um, 
and I could I could go into the like nitty gritty logistics of how the WTO works if if that would be helpful. But you know, just sort of all those kinds of things were going to be happening, and also it just seemed like the WTO was going to be more and more legitimate, right? Because it's less than five years old when this meeting is happening, but it's already had rulings that have challenged like environmental protections. It had a very devastating ruling about um, an agreement that European countries had with some of their former colonies for trade benefits that had been stripped away. So, so the material effect is just from the activist perspective was like, this is like this blob that's just growing bigger and more powerful. So anything that slows it is beneficial and also power building for our own movements. Practically speaking, what tanking the meeting ended up meaning was the US and EU had really strong disagreements that the powers that be said those that was the whole reason. Like it didn't matter that there were protests, like just the US and EU can't get along. But the thing is that the WTO works a lot, oddly enough, on like consensus um, models. So if like country negotiators don't agree, that's a problem. And what happened with the negotiations in Seattle is that the Caribbean countries and sub-Saharan African countries, basically at the end of the day, and not for like particularly left-wing reasons, but just for kind of very like, no, but what's good for our, like the interests of our like capitalist development reasons were like, this isn't a good deal and like walked away. And that helped kind of, that really shut it down. And then another key little piece that really I think puts the argument that the protests had no effect into uh, the proper light uh, is that the negotiators asked the Seattle government, it's like, well, can we stay here longer than we had planned? Like, can we keep going? And the mayor of Seattle was like, do you see what's happening on the streets? Like, I will literally not offer you any more police protection. Like, get out of here. No, I do. You are a political liability for me. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, exactly. Also, I mean, like, right, the the Seattle chief of police, um, Norm Stamper, resigned shortly afterwards and has become actually a really interesting voice for at least like progressive police reform, if not, not like quite abolition, but like a really strong critic of it. And he's partly like coming from it, from having been one of the bad guys, as he basically himself says. Um, but that is yeah, really so that, interesting. Yeah. So that, but, but right. Just like the protests were making it such that there was no more time to keep like trying to make this agreement work. Mm-hmm. So even the EU U S thing argument doesn't really work because it's like the protests shut that possibility down. <laughs> right. Cut short negotiations or, yeah. or delayed right. them. Yeah. It's so the, the, the whole monkey wrench concept gets exactly sort of deployed really effectively. Yeah. So, so that's, that, that's what happened with Seattle. And that's why shutting the meeting down, you know, it, so, so it, it stops temporarily, at least the growth of the WTO it makes it seem like a more controversial organization and it inspires people to get involved with the movement. So I think those are the three main kind of material political consequences for like the broad from, you know, from like, you know, your Sierra club liberal to like your, you know, direct action network, like anarchist, anti-capitalist, like those are the three main things it does for you as far as advancing 
your political project, right? Because that defeat actually helps all of those political projects in different ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so then, so then it's ni- it's the end of 1999. We have 2000, and then we have September 11th. And so, what is what is the sort of Bush presidency and the and the kind of um, at least from the U.S. perspective, the the 9-11 moment due to this new social movement. Right. Well, so I, I first preface just by quickly saying, right, after Seattle, there becomes this whole thing of summit hopping, like every meeting of like global economic and political elites, there are mass protests, right? Europe, the U.S., right? There's all this movement building internationally. There's big protests in the U.S. And the thing that I think gets forgotten and but i remember especially uh, forgotten in sort of the broad popular like you know your new republic atlantic narrative i you know there's always many narratives going on but that that's the one i'm identifying is that in late september 2000 what the imf and world bank were going to meet and there was going to be what looked to be the first over 100,000 person large protest in the U.S. against one of these institutions. There was almost a sense of competition because the Europeans had already done it in um, late June in Genoa, um, where, where one of the protesters was killed by the police. Um, and there was all this mobilization. The AFL-CIO had been somewhat after Seattle, a little more reticent to get involved in the protest, but now was like going to go in on it. There was going to be a big press conference on the morning of September 11th of a number of the more mainstream progressive groups organizing this protest, sort of announcing their intentions. And then the attacks happen. Um, You know what? September 11th did, you know, is it just like shuts down so much of like the room for dissent right afterwards, especially like on the street disruptive dissent. Um, you know, this isn't like the articulated reason by anyone for like why September 11th helps harm things. But I think it's interesting that, you know, the FBI in preparation for the Seattle meeting, their main concern had actually been terrorism, not protests. But then as it became more clear that there were going to be this disruptive protests, they sort of changed their perspective to look on that. But that sense of like fear of security and like challenges to the elite, right? It's like, can be pretty fungible, as I saw in the FBI documents, which fortunately were partially FOIA'd by someone else before I started the project. And so with 9-11, it's like, whoa, okay, this is big. And, you know, I, I include a few anecdotes that on 9-11 and like September 12th, there were some like media commentators and a few other people who actually were like, what if it was one of the Seattle anarchists? Like, who did that, right? So that was like the level of it. But just generally the sense of dissent being unpatriotic became so profound so quickly. And Bush tied neoliberal free trade to the war on terror so quickly, right? This idea that like free trade is part of freedom and what we're doing is fighting for freedom against the enemies of freedom, that became really untenable. And also, right, the other thing is that a lot of activists, and I include myself in a, in a somewhat self-critical way, didn't necessarily see how 
all these things interconnected, right? So sort of like, oh, there's a globalization thing, but now we're switching to anti-war. And there are obvious connections. And, you know, I think some people saw them at the time, but they also is the kind of thing where on a practical organizing level, right, it's easier to be like, war is bad because it kills people. And like, this isn't going to solve this issue of like Al Qaeda without going through the like, and right, multinational corporations and neoliberal globalization. Like, so, so there was a real attention shift that is quite understandable along with militant disruptive street protests being hard and being made even harder after um, the anti-free trade area of the Americas protests in 2003 in Miami, where law enforcement really, really cracked down, you know, just like much more aggressive use of like non-lethal violence. So, right, you're stunned, you know, your tear gas and your rubber bullets and so on and so forth. And I think Miami kind of really shut down the disruptive street protests because it was like, oh, wow, like we are just going to be crushed in, in the future. I think it's what a lot, of, not everyone thought that, certainly, but that, that was enough of a sense that you couldn't mobilize the same like large numbers of people, especially for more disruptive things, right? You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure maybe if you also like went to some, like I went to IMF World Bank protests in like the early mid 2000s, but they were very like, we have a rally, there's a march, it's not that much disruption. Also, the police are like much more attuned and ready uh, to strike. And also the visuals felt felt different. So, so that kind of, what I argue is that shuts down the movement, but not the coalition. That there's this brief moment, I use a bunch of social movement theorists to kind of talk about the distinction between coalition and social movement. Um, that I would say between Seattle and 9-11, the discuss, this fair globalization, anti-corporate or capitalist globalization politics in the U.S. becomes a social movement. And then it reverts back to the more coalitional fair globalization politics of like lobbying and advocacy and sometimes rallies, but, you know, more, more at that directed at the Congress and the executive branch kind of politics mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. a broader array. Yeah. I, that is a moment where I remember in like 2003, 2004, I remember being frustrated mostly by feeling like the protests I was attending, which had so many people, like this was in Portland, um, like didn't have just found no audience. Right. I, I found it, I, I was, I sort of ended with this sense of like, what's the point of this? And it strikes me um, in this conversation with you that what had been severed was that link between the Sierra Club liberals and the, and the um, direct action folks, right? Like the, the distance between the people who are doing spectacular and more disruptive things and the people who are not that comfortable with that was just really heightened in that post 9-11 moment. And it made it hard to to coordinate on across all those levels. And that connection, and also to make the connection between the war and other things, right? And I I have this mo- I have this memory of being at a protest blocking the street in downtown Portland, and this woman in a an SUV came up. This was an anti-war protest, and she started screaming at us about her right to use gas. Uh-huh. And to pollute, right? And I was like, what? 
the heck are you talking? Like, this is, we're talking about the invasion. Yeah. Um, And it strikes me that actually she saw connections that I wasn't seeing in the moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, the whole, that's a, could be a whole other, other Uh, conversation about some of the, a fascinating one uh, about that. I think it's, it's, yeah, that there, there was this, that's a really good point about sort of the disconnect between some of those different groups. But I also think just sort of the politics around the war became even harder, right? Because like with the, the more direct action stuff, right. It's like, you'd have to stop like a division of the U S army right, from like being shipped over. Right. Right. And you yeah. know, going from like a military port, not even a civilian, you know, not a civilian port. Right. And there was, I know there were things during the sort of lead up and during the war of like, you know, the, the longshoremen would like block a ship for a few days. And I think that, you know, that's really brave and good stuff, but, you know, it wasn't quite the same as like with Seattle that you could just like stop all these delegates and literally like stop the meeting, which was the core of like moving the agenda forward. And I should also say that, you know, there were other non-lobbying things that were happening, but I think they became also felt somewhat disconnected from a movement. So there's like the spread of like the fair trade products, which is a whole ambiguous question. Cause like there's some kinds of fair and direct trade that are actually really great and really do boost up communities I've seen like I've visited communities in, in Guatemala where that's the case, but there's also a lot of BES in that yeah. world. Um, there's a lot of fair trade washing that happens. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, um, and then there was United Students Against Sweatshops um, was doing like really effective activism. But, you know, one of the things and this, I don't mean as a critique, just like an observation, but in the late nineties, early two thousands moment, they were very focused on sort of the international sweatshops and that kind of world. And then there was a big shift more towards like solidarity campaigns with campus workers. Right. And again, not a critique, but just an observation of sort of the decline of that kind of like the, the globalization focused aspect and also how that then allowed, you know, a group like USAS to be tied into some of these other movements Although the more local thing helped them get focused on other kinds of, you know, build other kinds of coalitions. Yeah. So. Yeah. They're just different choices that they got exactly. made in that moment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to ask you about what you're doing next, but before you do, I, I want to knowing that you started this project around 2011, right. And this book is coming out at a really different political moment. Right. And so what, how did your project change and what was it like, honestly, to be writing this book during the 2016 moment and um, this past decade, how did that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, and this is the conclusion the book makes where I tried to make the like empathetic, historically minded version of the nonprofit industrial complex critique that a lot of other people have done, um, which is, you know, my critique of, I guess my critique of the critique of the nonprofit industrial complex is partly that it's often about more kind of service groups, which I'm not like groups that aren't as politicized in the first place, though they are, should be uh, in many cases, 
but I just saw that it's less that these groups are like trying to co-opt and trying to like get rid of social movements. It's just that like with kind of the decline and even collapse of social movements of the liberal left and the end of the 20th century in the US that like these small nonprofits just like kind of ended up picking up more of the burden of being like the voice in the politics, like more than they should have been, right? They just were like not the right groups. Like they weren't demographically representative. They didn't have the mass bases and everything, but that I don't think that was like kind of a, you know, a foundation, you know, like the, the most extreme version of this is that like a few philanthropic foundations were like, we will get rid of the new left by like funding, like advocacy nonprofits, um, and so seeing like over the course of this time, though, the rise of like Black Lives Matter, some revived labor militancy, like DSA's growth, and, and also just like the growth of groups that, you know, it's harder to like explicitly sort of cite with the thing, but there's just sort of general progressive groups, right? Like the, you know, the stuff from Organizing for America or like, you know, local grassroots organizations, I was like, okay, this is great because I think now these nonprofits can like find a healthier, like smaller role and not like need, like not be like, oh, you're the voice of like the left. It's like, cause you're not the voice of the left. <laughs> like you never were, but also they didn't like say that, right. They weren't like, you know, public citizen wasn't like, we're the voice of the left. It was just like, well, who's critiquing NAFTA from like a liberal progressive perspective? These guys. Um, so I think that's been exciting. With uh, 2016, I mean, that was why, obviously while a bunch of ways, but the, the prominence of trade and like the presence of Bernie and Trump, who I like make very explicit, I like hate when people are like, Bernie doesn't like NAFTA and Trump doesn't like NAFTA. They're the same. And it's like, oh, that is so shallow. But there, there is something there with just like the frustration with trade. I do think there's some really tricky questions that I explore a bit in the book that I'm still considering about how Trump's brought up of like opposition to free trade and ex- how much you can extricate that from xenophobia um, that it's sort of often there, even in some of the progressive circles, but manifests in really different ways. But also just part of it for me was that it confirmed that the actors in the book and the story were important because we're now at a point where like, you know, people, and this is still sometimes a critique that I find not baseless but like shallow is sort of like oh biden's just like the same kind of democrat before and it's like i kind of don't care what joe i mean i care in some ways what joe biden thinks but also like he is a product of like the political context that he's operating in and like you know the uh catherine lay who's the current u.s trade representative like some of the groups I write about like supported her nomination. And I don't think they've like ever supported anyone for to be USTR, like who had a serious chance. And also like pretty soon after she got it, she was like having public like town hall with the AFL CIO. And like, it was very friendly and like, you know, and you know, then the big moment fairly recently was when the Biden administration supported um, waiving the WTO intellectual property protections in order to, try to help produce more COVID vaccines. And I was like, I don't like, I don't think the political situation was such that like Obama or Bill Clinton 
would have done that. Like the political situation has changed in a way. And oh, some of the groups I write about were really key to that, that victory. So it's left just a really interesting and hard to predict spot where, you know, to sort of go back over, there are some actual mass movements again, so that like the nonprofits I talk about can, again, hopefully have a, a more logical place in the struggle. And then the politics of globalization in the US are such that it seems like there's a truce almost, like a stalemate in like the furtherance of neoliberal economic governance. The WTO has not reached a new agreement since fall of 2001. Right, we're coming up of almost 20 years of the WTO just kind of doing the things it's been mandated to do and nothing more. And the you know, international political situation looks very different in ways that I think some of the actors that I write about and new actors are still navigating and figuring out. Um, a lot of them have energy has switched towards climate change and the international climate negotiations is the battleground for these debates over international neoliberalism. That would be a great book for someone to write. <laughs> Hopefully if there are books being written in a few decades. The uh, Return and, of the Snowy Owl. Yeah. The one the one other thing I'd say though that I, I did hope the book would highlight is that I do think the moment in the late 90s for the liberal left, that there was kind of more international attention in some ways and a more diverse array of international attentions than is I sort of find on a lot of parts of the left now. Like there are definitely people and organizations who are trying to do that, but a lot of the discussion is very domestic focus, which in a number of ways makes a lot of sense but as fights like the MAI fight show, like sometimes the transnational is just really a vital sphere. And also like certainly for anyone on the, the you know, broad left in the U.S. who's concerned about the inequalities generated by private enterprise and the government in the U.S., it's like those same things are also happening in different ways overseas. And like there's also culpability there if we want to get into more moralistic language. So that that's something... I definitely don't want to sound like back in the day people, right? But but there is I'm not I think something was lost a bit with the decline, you know, the sort of September 11th shutting down that moment when there was just all this internationalism, right? And it was like a thing to do in activist circles to like and I know you right you study Bolivia, but right I remember like I think probably the first time I ever thought about Bolivia in any way was like do you all know about the like water privatization and Cochabamba and like the amazing social, right? There was just this thing. Like, of exactly like, then is when that right, was happening and, right. and, and people then, knew about yeah. it or, or like the Zapatistas and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and then also I think it was, it, it was, it could be reductive in ways, but it was positive because it wasn't like, oh, like there's these people over there suffering, but right. The emphasis was like, wow, there's these amazing like struggles and people like fighting for their own rights. And how can we like aid in those struggles it was like very present. Yeah, you could. I I could argue that one of the reasons that I studied Bolivia was that in two thousand five, two thousand six, it was a it was a more inspiring political situation than uh, the United States was, for example. <laughs> yeah, right? For sure. You could you could look to a creative impulse 
Um, oh yeah, I mean that wasn't I mean, that that wasn't at home, right? Right. No, I mean I remember in my my house in college, we like threw a party when Lula won the Brazilian presidential election for the first time. But it was also like what. Like we're a bunch of like mainly white like college kids, but we like were like paying attention to Brazilian politics, and that kind of grew out of that moment. So what's what's next for you? What are you working on now, and what would you like to work on in the future? Yeah, well, so I'm actually uh, returning to where we we first uh, in, encountered each other in Madison to do some research. Uh, I, I have. I mean, there are three main projects I'm like kind of bouncing around and thinking about. The one that I'm, the, there are two that I'm sort of doing more direct research on. And this, these all relate to the themes in this first book are, um, I, I'm thinking of doing a short history of just internationalism and US social movements, kind of like starting with like abolitionists and even like mm-hmm, looking at mm-hmm. ways that enslaved people and freed blacks and whites tried to in some ways fight against settler colonization of indigenous people up through the present just kind of a a short more thematic history sounds like a short book yes yeah well big themes broad discussion kind of thing but um and then then i'm also in thinking and wanting to go deeper into some of the critiques of the more kind of professionalized form of advocacy and think about grassroots organizing, I've been thinking about that there's an interesting intellectual, or you could call it praxis discussion about community organizing. Right? There are literal schools like the Highlander Folk School, Industrial Areas Foundation, that are in some ways like the most interesting mix of practice and scholarship, right? Where like people draw from psychology, sociology, history, political science to think about like how to do organizing, but then are immediately like putting it into effect. And so I'm thinking of doing a sort of like, I mean, praxis is, I don't know, like maybe not the right term, but it's the best one that comes to mind at the moment. History of like a few main dilemmas in community organizing and looking at how some key literal schools, so like Highlander, Industrial Areas Foundation, Midwest Academy, Third World Organizing, um, I think Institute. I'm, I'm still learning even the names of some of the places. That's how new this is. Chat took on certain questions about community organizing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and do a history of that. So, so I'm going to Madison to look through the Highland, some of the Highlander records, for example. Um, so yeah, that those, sounds those are very some cool. of my thoughts. Yeah. That's that's a really interesting project. Um yeah, and I really look forward to seeing what you put together next. Thank you so much for Thank uh, you so for much for having here. me on um for the wonderful thought-provoking conversations. This was a delight.